When you think about where your life is now and how you got here, have you thought about and reflected on the experiences in your life and the impact it has had on the person you are today? Here at The Shape of You, we believe that these experiences shape where you are today, either physically or mentally. My name is Tanya Jones. I am a sports radio journalist, and I've interviewed many athletes who have overcome challenges. The Shape of You podcast aims to inspire you with life stories that may help reflect on your life and further understand your strength in overcoming life's challenges. Welcome to The Shape of You. In today's episode of The Shape of You, Can a Building Shape the Future? An Architectural Perspective. I'll be discussing architectural theory and ethics with Alex Cherry, who is a master's student at Deakin University, and his current project is to explore this topic. Our discussions today will build on a foundation of knowledge established in an essay written by Alex, where he explored the question, How can an architect be considered ethical and professional within the 21st century global context of architecture? The essay touched upon many topics, including an analysis of the architect, why they do what they do and how they conduct work. We will analyse a global icon within the industry, Danish architect Bjarke Ingels, and aim to determine if he and his firm, Big, Bjarke Ingels Group are an example of ethical practice or if they are riding on a wave of fame and status fueled by capitalism and greed. Firstly, we will analyse Big and his architecture firm by first understanding what the broad definition of ethics is and perhaps what the architectural perspective is. We will then use the words of Bjarke himself where he explains what he thinks an ethical architecture firm looks like and dissects the values in which he runs his firm using the reference time-sensitive Bjarke Ingalls to cities takes a longer view, episode four. And a line of criticism has been selected by Alex which aims to undermine Bjarke's work as an architect. This criticism will be contracted against five of Bjarke's best proposals. And at the end of our discussion, we'll aim to answer these questions. Can we conclude that big exploits capitalism? Is this a bad bad thing? And can it still be considered good design? Firstly, to explore those questions, we need to discuss what ethics actually is. Welcome to The Shape of You, Alex. Thank you, Tanya. That was fantastic. A bit of a lengthy intro. Uh, You must be out breath. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, take, taking a breath now and, and it's going to be an interesting discussion and looking forward to finding out a bit more about this and, and to better inform our, our discussion we will need to define what ethics is and perhaps the architectural perspective as well Alex Yeah, great So um, I'll just start with the Britannica definition of ethics which is ethics also called moral philosophy the discipline concerned with the morality good and bad and morality of right and wrong The term is also applied to any system or theory of moral values or principles. Uh, How should we live? How should we aim to... um, Should we aim for happiness or knowledge, virtue or creation, or uh, beautiful objects? So uh, the architectural definition I I come up with via a plethora of 
academic sources um, from architectural theorists Mark Wigley and a, and a few others where they were, I've collated a few things and this is the end of the, the conclusion for that essay. So as Mark Wigley denotes, good architecture is a building that asks questions. But I wanted to rebut and say, well, what is a building that asks questions? Well, at the very, very least, a building of the 21st century must promote innovation by facilitating change within the industry and address current social, political and environmental challenges. Thus, the ethical dilemma is this. When society nominates an architect to contribute to the built environment, do they just satisfy the client brief adopting a previous successful building model? Or do they create a multi-layered form which addresses change and positively contributes to the built environment? Or do they not build the building at all? Yeah, that, that's a question for everyone, isn't it? But as you said in the... The official definition of ethics from Botanica is that the creation of beautiful objects is, is what humans essentially like, don't they? Yeah, I guess um, humans are curious beings. Uh, we're innately, uh, what it is to be human by Mark Wigley's definition is that we create, we design, we are designers. So if you're not necessarily a designer by modern standards, uh, you certainly do design things all the time. Like, uh, your, you design the, the emails that you write to colleagues, uh, what cooking and things, uh, your daily habits are, are designed through what you like and what you don't like. Um, what determines us from, uh, as, as a human race, as, as an animal, is someone that is curious and hopeful. And uh, we, we create things, constantly searching for innovation. Constantly, and we look forward to talking about that a bit more. And I mentioned about the Danish architect, we're talking about Bjark Ingels, and before we talk about what Bjark thinks uh, as an ethical firm, there, there is an article questioning the ethics of Bjark himself, isn't there, Alex? Yeah, yeah. So early in 2020, Bjark Ingels uh, took a trip to Brazil and met with the uh, president there, and it was not taken lightly within the, uh, within the media saying that Bjark is, is being uh, hypocritical uh, of meeting with this person because people believe that the president of, of Brazil doesn't align with the same ethics that Bjark Ingels group and Bjark Ingels follows by, which is a, a sustainability uh, good for the people and, and working with possibly ethical kind of means of, of creating architecture. And they think that during the fires of the Amazon rainforest, the president didn't really do that much to help the uh, communities in need. Um, he was more about promoting the the kind of political nature of Brazil. So in response, uh, Kate, I think this article by Kate Wenger, she acknowledges that there was a criticism thrown at Bjark Ingels where he stood up for himself and said it's an oversimplification superficial clickbait and sheer ignorance. However, Wenger defends him by saying that most uh, most big architects always fall into this realm of being criticised uh, for what work they do do and what work they don't do, um, and this can be uh, challenging. But she also says that something that can be determined ethical is quite difficult. You don't, You can't take something broad and say it's like Bjark Ingels and Bjark Ingels group is unethical as a entity um, you need to separate the individual kind of characteristics of the firm and say well this is ethical this is unethical uh, or perhaps it all is ethical who knows I guess we'll, we'll find out. And Biak also mentioned this trip to Brazil in uh, a lecture at Columbia University an interesting comment that he made 
there, wasn't it, in reference to this? Yeah, he was. Um, he was. He just threw it as a off comment um, in the Columbia University after his lecture while he was giving uh, answers to students' questions, and he they were tackling. They were saying that you seem to operate in the global north. Why don't you operate in the global south? And he said, "Well, it's funny you say that because I've recently got backlash for going to a trip to Brazil." And he said, "You are you're not supposed to work in South America or specifically Brazil, with which, of course, I disagree with severely." So he, he's like, I, I was caught off guard by the criticism because I was just going about my own work. Obviously, he uh, was innocent to the fact. He, he didn't expect the backlash there. No, definitely not. I don't think so. Now, Bjarke's buildings fall into the category where architects like to describe as utopian realism, which is not yet an official movement, is it? No, no. Architects don't uh, acknowledge this uh, form of architecture as a, a possible movement or anything but as it like stands it takes one to start a movement so I guess he's pushing for this but it takes a lot of uh, a lot of money a lot of purpose and a lot of trust within the clients to make something utopian because uh, it's it could not be proven so he's a utopian realist which means that he, he provides utopian thoughts different thoughts weird thoughts but backs them up with with theory hard evidence and data that can be proven to be good for everyone. So that goes into his also his other ideology, which is hedonistic sustainability, which is the project is good for everyone and everything. So the, uh, the people who build it, they get the money. The people that live in it are happy and it's sustainable for the world. And to achieve that particular outcome that you're talking about, it needs to be designed with those three core principles that he, that he talks about. Yeah, it's incredible. So um, in... The time-sensitive podcast, uh, he doesn't talk about architecture um, and, the, and the architecture that he makes in a promotional way. He talks about it from the lens of, of an academic or, or a theorist. So uh, it's known that perhaps architects can be in love with buildings a little bit too much um, and that we are a little bit too invested in our, in our architecture or our discipline. So we all become theorists basically uh, always constantly thinking about things. So he was chatting about it in this podcast and he said he breaks down his firm values, which are three different principles. Uh, number one is identifying the change, any change. So before they start a project, uh, they he explicitly tells his staff to not, bring, uh, to not br- begin the project with what you already know, but you must tackle the project by problems of facilitating change. So this means to ensure that the building is relevant for people and the community and discovering and addressing a new issue. Once you find yourself with that new issue, you have, you're faced with a brand new plethora of constraints. So this might be brought upon a neighbourhood change, recent development that's gone up. The council code may have been adapted. The people there might need new things uh, and technology of products and the list goes on. So it's important that a building tackles new things because it needs to address new things. Um, there's no point building a building that's already been built because then you're just doubling up on something. And what's the second core principle? This is a, quite an interesting one. Yeah, it's funny. So he says uh, he wa- he's always tried to make light of things. Uh, often his proposals are, are very playful. Um, but he says that he makes a joke and he says, what does your form give? It gives a form gift. So uh, he says that, well, architects always want to go above and beyond. So um, as well as the political power and the money to make something happen, 
you can take all the necessity from the client, um, all the rules from the brief and the counsel, and you can try to respond to that in a way where it's not only responding to the questions that you've been given, but it's putting something forward, something additional, something for the world that the world didn't ask for, but that it could possibly want or need. So something nice for perhaps this is a, a social area outside of the building where uh, the public can gather and then also the program can be facilitated within the building at the same time without uh, a kind of new addition to the urban fabric. So uh, uniting people and, and things like that. But I guess we will uh, see throughout the, the next couple of uh, buildings how that might have been addressed. It's a bit and, of a tough I'm, one. I'm interested to see there, Alex, too, about big wanting to give a gift to the world, ones that gifts that people didn't know they asked for in the first place. So that's an interesting concept in itself, <laughs> isn't it? Do you think, do you think that's an, an arrogant kind of approach or do you think it's, okay, a gift-giving approach? I think we're just so invested in what we're doing. We, we never want to just satisfy the brief for what it is because the brief is always given to us off the basis of something that's already been known, something that's already, we go, oh, okay, we want a school. Well, we know what schools look like. We know what they need. Well, perhaps we can adapt, change, address something else that a school can kind of build from and a new piece of infrastructure. Maybe it's an indoor outdoor classroom. Maybe it's a classroom that's neither. Um, it, it, it merges both, but it's completely open-ended and that's when the creativity of the architect comes out um, and you get some pretty incredible stuff as well as getting a school, if that mm. makes sense. Some, something resourceful, something useful for society. Yeah, yeah. Change, you're talking about change. The power plant cha- is, is an interesting building or concept, as you would say. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so in, in, back to the, the podcast reference, uh, I'll quote Bjark himself by uh, uh, explaining what his waste energy power plant is. So he said, usually power plants are dirty and toxic, so you have to be really far away from them as possible. But for this power plant, this new power plant, you can be so close to it, you can actually inhabit the roof. And he reimagined the power plant. Well, why would you want to re- uh, inhabit a roof of a power plant? Well, he said that Denmark's really flat and we don't have much snow. So maybe we can use this big pinnacle of uh, environmental engineering as a kind of leisure ski slope. So he's made an artificial ski slope on the top of uh, Denmark's highest point. And uh, he also says that what used to be the symbol of pollution is now a celebration of a new kind of urban landscape. Clean technology is not just clean for the environment, it's clean for everyone. A grey zone on the city map is now an exciting point on the map. Not only a gift for the residents of Copenhagen, but a gift for the future a source of inspiration, a different baseline, a different demands and ideas for his future. Yes, the cleanest waste-to-energy power plant in the world. That's a big statement, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, so it's it's great. Um, big breakthrough for the people in, in that industry and I guess Biak's trying to celebrate this by making, uh, turning a different perspective and making people appreciate that, yeah, we can, we can go up onto this power plant but uh, it's also doing a different job underneath us whilst we have this infrastructure. Um, so that, that's very interesting. But I guess if we analyse this building from the first point, what is the change? Well, the change is that this is the first quick, clean uh, waste-to-energy power plant with uh, non-harmful 
like toxins coming out of the chimney, so that means that people can be close to it. So he says, well, what do we do with that? Well, we could just make a traditional power plant, but then I mean, people don't have to be far from it, so maybe people can be on it. And then he says the gift is the gift is being able to be on the power plant, but how do you facilitate an activity there? Well, we'll make a hiking track, a rock climbing wall, and a, a ski slope. And he said, hopefully uh, Denmark didn't win any medals in the Sochi Winter Olympics, but maybe the next Winter Olympics they could win some medals <laughs> with the practice. <laughs> They've got plenty, plenty of practice there. And talking about the, the green movement and so forth, well, the book At the Crossroads of Sustainability pokes holes in the current green movement by breaking it up into segments about Ingle. Yeah, so this is uh, a negative outlook on the building uh, from Michael Euphrasia's uh, outlook on, on green buildings. He doesn't just address this building, he addresses multiple buildings attacking big names such as Norman, Norman Foster as well. But uh, Mugel talks about the power plant as ironic symbolization of green energy, uh, being able to suppress the reality of the climate change that's happening. So when people look at this building, they go, wow, it's, it's so green, but it's also so, um, it's so uh, progressive that perhaps it could be uh, like everything's okay. They get a kind of ease, a sense of, uh, well, climate change doesn't really matter because this building is doing so much for it. But in the broad scheme of things, you might think that it's just one needle in, in a giant haystack. Um, it doesn't really do much for the environment. Right. So he's saying that possibly buildings such as this make everyone think everything's okay, but possibly the buildings, are, buildings in general are the, the real enemy here. The ironic symbolisation... Yeah, that's what definitely, we're talking about. Definitely. And and I suppose when you've got a, a ski slope on there and that it might, as they say, it might detract from actually what's going on. Yeah, so in my uh, essay, I touched upon this thing called the, the reality of, or what uh, theorists call hermeneutics. So hermeneutics is the uh, background of of knowledge of what you see the world through your own eyes or how you see the world. So someone that grows up in the first world country will have a different perspective on life than someone from the third world country. Someone that grows up in the city versus the country is, is different. And uh, I guess being able to be suppressed by your own reality might make you think and pause for a second um, and, and change your perspective. Also, the issue of, of or the, the act of migration. Uh, you're from Perth, but now you're, you're in Bendigo. So... Uh, I guess that's a that's a bit of a change. I, I think you'd be different from the time you were in Perth than in comparison to moving here. Have you learned anything? Well, it's interesting because I always saw Perth as being very clean and open spaces. And when you come to a country town like this, it feels a lot more compact. And yeah, your perspective on the world does change with that, doesn't it? It's it's quite an interesting. Have you thought. had any conversations with people where they have different perspectives on life? Um, different attitudes to things. Uh, this is getting quite uh, informed or deep, but um, th that's kind of the, the message they're going for. So perhaps a building through the issue, uh, the act of migration, moving into a building, if a building can suppress your own reality of just going to work or just going to have lunch or something, well, perhaps someone might stop and go, wow, this is actually really nice or this is amazing or I feel like, uh, I don't know, uh, open-minded, clear-headed, 
um, and, and et cetera. So perhaps you might stop. And if you stop, you might think. And if you think, you might dream. And if you dream, then you might go back into your own reality of what you see the world as and think of what you do in a slightly different way. And I guess architects can't make the world a better place with one building, but with many, many people that visit there, perhaps only 10% or 5% of those people, if they become inspired, then maybe they can go off into their own life and make their own industry better in whatever way. Yeah, and so it's that, it's that positivity around it, isn't there? That dream effect. Yeah, yeah. And creating that type of reality. And I suppose when you... We'll talk about these buildings a bit more, but when you go into those buildings, it's... I suppose the whole thing, you're in another world. Is yeah, that is yeah. that the kind of... Yeah, so I guess um, Michael Euphrasia is... Miguel Euphrasia, sorry, is, is attacking this building for suppressing reality, making people think everything's fine. Mm-hmm. But then the architectural perspective or the, the practitioner's perspective would be, well, this building is is giving people so much freedom, so much um, open-mindedness that they might stop and, and think about and consider their own life within the context of whatever they're living and uh, make their world a little bit better with whatever capacity that might be. It's quite broad but mm. and, and it's quite hopeful, but humans are all about hope. They, they are about hope. And and with that too, Alex, it, it's, it's quite an interesting where we go on to talk about technology here and that's part of our lives, isn't it, and the stack effect? Yeah, definitely. So um, he's saying that uh, Norman Foster's buildings or green buildings in general are very sustainable possibly for the environment but not very sustainable f- from a financial perspective due to inflation um, of being a green building that developers get to sell it at a high, much higher price so then the people that live in it, uh, it just segregates the rich and the poor really. So... I, just this, the mention of the stack effect in technology is that everything that is new is always expensive because it's, the future of it is uncertain. So you see things on, on Shark Tank or you see the new, uh, the first touch screen phone that probably wasn't Apple. It was probably some overpriced um, technology where only a small amount of people would buy it. But then as the touch screen became more popular... Apple took a hold of it and, and more consumers. Everyone now is using a touchscreen and they're quite affordable now in comparison to probably what they were. Um, things like electric cars and solar PV units on the top of the houses have the same effect. They were very expensive, but now they're becoming competitive. So perhaps green buildings are very expensive now, but as they become more popular, they might not be in the future. I'm interested to hear too your thoughts on this. Although everyone agrees capitalism is not a perfect philosophy, everyone agrees it's here to stay. And Mark Wigley even states that it's easier to comprehend the end of the world than imagine the fall of capitalism. <laughs> it's probably probably quite true that, isn't it, that statement? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think that there was... Uh, Rem Coolhouse is another big name within architecture and he's, he approaches this, um, not directly approaches this question, but... Um, in one of his lectures, he uh, says that a modern architect can tackle capitalism in one of three ways. They can either work with it and attempt to divert it. They can approach the project from a completely utopian standpoint, disregarding the the confines or constraints of of capitalism. And this can either go two ways. It can either be dismissed or start a new movement. Or you simply don't 
play the game at all and you don't operate in a world or a country that has uh, capitalism. So uh, this happened with Louis Kahn and Le Corbusier in the 1960s with their uh, Bangladesh National Embassy building and India's uh, Changrada building. Um, They are monumental concrete structures uh, which stand as symbols of political and social strength for the working people of those countries. So they're not just another New York skyscraper standing up with the other New York skyscrapers uh, trying to differentiate itself via aesthetic style. They actually mean something to the people. So these uh, these quite famous architects of the past thought that in order to make meaningful architecture, they needed to go somewhere else. So yeah. perhaps that might be an approach as well to becoming an ethical architect. Sorry to cut you off there, but it's an interesting perspective in terms of the concrete structures. We often hear the term concrete jungle. We're living in a concrete jungle, but they they actually define this as, okay, this is a purpose behind this concrete jungle. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, So back to his principles, we've still got the third one to go. So number three, the building needs to cement itself in at least one of six uh, different dogmas. So he really wants these buildings to kind of speak to the future or always be relevant for the future. So the, one of the six dogmas are thinking, making, moving, sensing, feeding and healing. Um, so perhaps he, he hasn't gotten to the last two, he said in, his, uh, in the podcast, feeding and healing. However, the first thinking, making, moving and sensing are definitely um, addressed. So the building has to back to the first one, address change. Second is the building has to give a gift. And the third is the building needs to cement itself into one or six dogmas. Very interesting in terms of, uh, um, I'm interested to hear what you think about in terms of time being the only constant. Yeah, so he begins the podcast by saying that time is the only constant. And for an architect, this means that for the moment you think you're, uh, you have a building idea, that idea is already beginning to be irrelevant. So if you adopt a previous idea uh, from a different project, the relevance of the building starts to diminish or has already diminished because you haven't addressed any new things. Because society is always changing, if someone were to design, for instance, today a traditional office building, well, we know we're all... We're all in lockdown at the moment, so we can't use it. So what are all the buildings in, in Melbourne doing at the moment, lying vacant, the non-residential buildings? I guess there's one or two people just keeping the servers alive, but uh, if we were to address historical kind of principles or typologies of buildings, then we wouldn't be addressing the human figure, the human subject, uh, because the human subject, the way we live, always changes. Yeah, and ever so obvious now with lockdown and, and COVID and, and things like that where we've had to change the way we live and the buildings likewise have changed the way they look. Yeah, yeah. And then the purpose behind those buildings. Yeah, definitely. So I think what I'm trying to get at during this podcast is that there definitely is an aesthetic quality to buildings, but there's also an underlining... As you start to dis- dissect buildings like, um, like an architect... Because when we are given things, obviously we all like things that look good, good design, um, or things that may appeal to us. We, we know what we like or what we don't like, but that's often characteristic of 
of the building's form or what it looks like or what something looks like. Um, our first impression of someone might be how they approach us, how they look, their mannerisms and things. So what are the mannerisms of a building? What is the, the kind of uh, persona of a building? What does the building kind of give off as its uh, kind of... Um, it's, it's persona really. Um, I just had a mental blank there, but no, I guess there's a word for building persona. Yeah. It's called a persona, isn't it? Really? Well, I guess there's many different aspects to a building rather than it's aesthetic qualities is what I'm trying to say. So when we design a building, we don't just look at what does it look like, but how does it function? Yeah, and it's about that functionality. Alex Cherry is joining Tanya Jones on the Shape of You episode four today. Can a building shape the future and architectural perspective? And yeah, it can t- shape our future in, in many ways. And talking about shape, I'm, I'm looking forward to this discussion about the eight building, the shape eight building. That's <laughs> the figure eight. The yeah. figure eight. That's that's the word I was trying to come to. <laughs> Tell us about this building. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's amazing. So when I first looked at it, I thought, oh, well, that's all right. Um, That's a cool looking building, but what does it really um, do? How meaningful is it? And what do the people kind of experience when they're they're in it? Um, And the more I kind of research this building and the more I've researched other buildings is the more I come back to it and think, wow, this is so progressive. This is amazing for for its time and and doing so many good things for uh, just as a typology of building. I think it's very relevant to for today, it was built in 2009, 2010, um, that kind of about 11, 12 years ago. Um, and it's still holding up principles today. So if Bjark wants to insert his buildings into the future, it's definitely done that. It, incredible, isn't it? 2009, 2010, to have, to have this vision. Do you think he's visionary in terms of that? Yeah, definitely. So yeah. To explain um, to people that can't see this monitor at the moment, we're looking at a photo of a building that looks like a figure eight from the the top. The two holes in the uh, number eight are two courtyards. Um, And then the building is kind of extruded via its uh, extremities. So there's a a ramp that starts at the bottom of the building on ground floor and rises all the way up to the top townhouses. So usually townhouses are at the bottom of a building or on street level, but now he's he's giving the, the penthouse views, the double-heighted ceilings, to the uh, the top houses. So people are actually using the ramp more than they're using the stairs uh, to get up and down. You can ride your bike on it. It also connects a major uh, cycle track, also uh, a man-made reservoir next door. Um, you've also got uh, hospitality and office buildings, retail and things at the bottom floor. So I guess the pers- the progressive part of the building is how can this relate to, to modern day kind of living? And it's, it's very condensed. It's a, it's a social affordable house, housing complex. And it's actually been criticized here on his abstract Netflix uh, series, Architecture Bjark Ingalls. As podcast one host says, big projects are all all repeat similar traits, stacked vinyl glass forms with roof gardens, cheaply made for developer satisfaction, aesthetic promiscuity. So Bjark's rebuttal was that they are cheap buildings but achieving good design. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he a agrees. Good rebuttal? Um, so what is the good design? The good, is, good design is that are the people happy and how are the people happy and what does the building do? Um, and I guess 
He's used one corridor for every three floors, which means gives you more space. It also gives you uh, the modules or units to be able to in be interlocked. And I think 300 of the 400 different units are different. So everyone's got a unique kind of view of the world. They've also got a unique uh, apartment. So when they go and visit each other, apparently they've got uh, wine nights. They've also got a workshop in there. Uh, it's, it's really an entire community in one building. Very much so. And affordable social housing as well. That's part of it, isn't it, the budget? Yeah, I guess. How do you make a building so grand but uh, rely on uh, being able to be built? Because everything has to be built um, with the knowledge. It could be a utopian idea, but people without that idea have to be able to build it. Um, so how do you make it easy to build? Um, and this idea of the wheel is the best invention the human has ever had. Well, architects think it's the right angle <laughs> because anyone can work with a right angle. Everyone understands a right angle. You just take two measurements and join them together at the hip. So uh, I guess when you put curves into buildings, it starts to kind of confuse people and that's when you need to get the calculator out, I think. Yeah, and then figure, figure eight, we were talking about the social side of it before, COVID-19, a building like this, perfect in that scenario? Yeah, I guess so that, that comes into, into the future. So I've been thinking actively about how society may be adapting its, its work module, how people are going to, because at the moment everyone's using their houses which aren't designed to facilitate home life, work-life balance, a, a Soho building, small office, home office building, uh, and everyone's trying uh, finding the flaws of being able to live and work in, in the space that they never thought they would. So how do we build a building that facilitates this so people could easily transition from work life to home life and, and kind of do that? Maybe this building isn't specifically tailored for it, but it was never designed in that kind of era. So if we take the principles found in this building, well, perhaps we might have some ideas, might spark some inspiration. Yeah, that's what it's all about, inspiration, isn't it? The figure eight building, yeah, you should, should have a look at that if you can. And, and then we move into the Toyota woven city. Now, talking about capitalism here, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's very capitalistic. Um, it it's, might be obvious, in fact, that Biak is exploiting capitalism here to produce a city and use it as an experiment. So I guess um, it's all well and good for people and architects alike to look at buildings that Biak does and goes, well, it, it's easy for him to do it because he's got the means, he's got the status, he's got the money to do it. But he says in the podcast that he doesn't actually have the money. Someone needs to approach him with a, a building that they want to build and then they, uh, they give him the opportunity to do so. And they won't actually accept his wacky ideas without some form of justification. So maybe that's money, maybe that's how the building will promote the area um, and bring life to it. So perhaps, uh, what, like we just saw in the figure eight building, that was one of his first projects. So how did he convince the client which had the money to build it? It was affordable for the people that lived there. It was affordable for the people that built it. Um, and it was still uh, progressive. So I don't know the answer of, of trying to break free from capitalistic kind of manoeuvres or um, perhaps he's done it and we could follow suit. So yes, this building um, brings a lot of things. He says that it's uh, the fundamentals of what a city is, a living laboratory for 
personal mobility, mobility as a service, autonomy, robotics, smart home, connectivity through AI, multi-generational assisted uh, optimizing nature and promoting health, hydrogen powered infrastructure, academic research and incubation, industry collaboration, smart construction and manufacturing, bringing the community together lastly. So it's a bit of a mouthful that one, but um, that's what he's trying to incorporate all of these different things into the one city. So how does one do that? Yeah, I'm interested in that too. And I'm interested in what you had to say about Bjark Ingalls being approached. He doesn't have the money, but he gets approached. But actually he gets approached by these big companies. So imagine having someone like Toyota approach you. Yeah. So, so that's the name, isn't it, that he's got attached to these projects? Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, so I guess with... He's, he's a world-renowned architect, and if you want a world-renowned piece of architecture, you get the best in the business. And at the moment, he is one of the best in the business, um, at unbiasedly saying that. But he's, um, he's, he's doing that because he's redefining what we think reality is or what a building could be um, and questioning things constantly, but also through his hedonistic sustainability, saying that we're, we're going on a trajectory where we need to consider carbon sustainable buildings or carbon neutral or uh, sustainable this, green that. Um, but perhaps he can invent a model where to produce that, the developers get their own share back from building the building and they get uh, a name attached to it now. But then um, the people also, we're, we're always designing for the people. Futuristic so, chaos, as you've called it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So um, I guess to analyse why he's building a city it doesn't look like uh new york city it looks like a quite humble um low-rise set of uh wooden structures with curved uh roofs as i can see and the curved roofs are actually all solar paneled uh so they they're angled like a curve to get i guess they would have studied the optimal sun angle um for the the concave form so i guess to understand why he's doing this Innovation is a part of society. It's, it's moving at a faster rate than often most universities these days. Our cities are growing so fast that, in fact, by 2050, 9 billion people will be living in the world and 7 billion of them will be in the cities. So to not address or not to not reconsider or remaster plan some aspects of our globalisation or urbanisation would be uh, naive, I guess, for people within the building cons- uh, construction industry so maybe we don't have the kind of infrastructure or the the know-how to transform new york city or tokyo or london completely from scratch into something else but perhaps we can implement new things new ways that are proven um into this into our own existing urban fabric and how do we make them proven well we we do an expen- experimental city Right. And digital fatigue as well, tell us. Yeah, yeah. So um, we've gone from a really analogue society where we're constantly, well, with no digital uh, technology at all, I guess. I don't remember a time like that, but maybe you do. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Alex. I do remember Um, an analogue time. (laughs) (laughs) So um, we've gone from strictly analogue to digital and uh, we're thinking perhaps this virtual reality that everyone is so ingrained in at the moment uh, can be transformed back into an analog uh, society because we think that perhaps uh, the, the people that being born these days might be 
uh, I think you've you've got a new niece um, where she is is she knows how to use the iPad before maybe picking up forks and using how to how to her table manners and things. So perhaps she might reach a stage where she goes, "Hang on, what's a button? What's all these things? I can actually push something." So then we might bring back an influence, uh, like a more analog society, with the help of digital. Uh, mobility advertisement, the list goes on. So it takes us back to that curiosity thing we spoke about at the top of the podcast as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Humans definitely. Humans are naturally curious. So this new generation coming through, you think architects will tap into that curiosity? Yeah, and I think one of the biggest breakthroughs, not in our industry, well, it is kind of in our industry, is uh, is Blade Runner. So mm. everyone is, is kind of, we're all curious about this weird dystopian utopian kind of mm. landscape with the advertisements that are 3D objects, but they're completely, uh, you can pass through them or, or things like that. Some cl- it's On one hand, it's, it's scary to think about change in that way, but also it's necessary that we need to think about it because if we neglect it, industries around us are going to be evolving faster than what we are and we need to facilitate the way people are going to live. And if they're going to live with technology in such an influential state, well, maybe the architecture needs to respond to that as well. And the mobility side of it, getting people around better and parcel delivery, things like that? Yeah, definitely. So um, three big names, Biak himself, Toyota and Amazon, he's thrown in there as well. <laughs> so he says <laughs> he says that the, the actual city is called the Woven City. Um, so the meaning for that is that he's thought about the city as the 15-minute the city from Paris where people can walk out of their front door and find everything that they need within a 15-minute walk so they can go get the groceries, they can do the banking, they can do this and that. So everything is accessible within the one community so you don't need to travel long distances, which uh, is more uh, sustainable for the environment if you're not using uh, transport um, of, of such, like pollution. But also it's, it's better for the people because we actually get to experience the world, we actually get, get to go out and enjoy it. So he says how if we're using a model like that, we want people not to be travelling so far to work, et cetera, et cetera. And people are getting parcels delivered to them, which is diminishing the retail space mm. within our cities and our malls, um, which is pretty apparent in, in Bendigo, where we are at the moment. Uh, I, I went for a drive the other day and everything's bare, vacant lots. Maybe COVID's got something to do with that. But perhaps uh, <laughs> I know uh, Australia Post has been having a really hard time trying to keep up with the influx of... Um, online purchasing so he says maybe, maybe we can a adjustment to the postal service in their <laughs> building to be yeah. able to house all these parcels Alex. yeah yeah so uh, i think they've got like ducks and shoots where they they um have this central facility where they do the packaging and they shoot it off to the uh respective units and things so people can get it delivered without a person and drones and things but back to the woven city so he, he says that if we're building a city a 15 minute city perhaps we can split the street, which is so condensed with transport, into three different types of streets. So one for transport and personal use, uh, cars and bikes, and then one for bikes and people, and then one for people. So you've got kind of these green corridors filled with um, that divide each city block up into thin segments, but then you're able to offset these activities so they're accessible to everyone, and everyone can walk out of their house and go to either one of them because every third street repeats. So uh, I guess de- decongesting the uh, 
the amount of, of transport and things, but also getting people active, people getting out. Um, and it's a, it's a nice place to, to look at. Getting people together. That's what it's all about, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And then he, he separates the... He surrounds this entire community around a central marketplace. So he says, back to the, the retail, if retail's diminishing, well, maybe we can bring the marketplace back once a week, uh, the Sunday market, or maybe twice a week, where people can, if they want to sell stuff uh, physically, they can do so and uh, bring back community, bring back socialising, because we are social beings at the end of the day, um, which is, is good. Everyone likes talking to other people. Maybe not strangers, but I guess when you're in a tight-knit community like this, you might see people twice rather than never seeing the, the same person again. Mm, and when I lived in Perth, we used to always go to the market to get our vegetables. Didn't even think about going to those big supermarket yeah, chains. I, I wish there was uh, somewhere to get my fresh bread in the morning and, and go to the butcher and things like that, but it would be great. <laughs> get our milk but delivered. I'm, I'm stuck tra- travelling five to ten kilometres to the nearest Coles in my car. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly, certainly a different world, isn't it? And yeah, that's sort of what technology plays a big part in that, doesn't he? And, and Biark is looking at that new master plan for urban development. That's part of it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It? So if if it's innovation for the companies that he's involving, um, he needs to make this laboratory city uh, for them to do their research, their data, and and for auto, uh, autonomy vehicles to kind of progress, um, self-driving kind of things. All of those kind of future developments, all, always they all need a playpen to kind of produce data. Well, he says, well, what is Biak getting out of this? Well, he's he's developed this three-tier uh, street uh, thing, this this woven city kind of master plan concept, and he says that this can actually be adapted into places like Barcelona, New York, London, Tokyo, and so on, where you have a whole community surrounded by green space. And you, you can go up and uh, medium high-rise buildings and things. And that's actually happening in Australia at the moment where uh, places overseas like the Netherlands and they're also progressive like that sort of style of buildings with the, the bike travel and the medium-rise buildings and the social infrastructure and all these things. Perhaps we can stop going out, urban expansion, and perhaps going up a little bit, but not too much. So, uh, yeah, have you, have you ever been to overseas and experienced that? Yeah, I was, I was very amused in the Netherlands, particularly Amsterdam and Rotterdam, with the amount of cyclists around and, and the I mean, Netherlands produces great Olympic cyclists and maybe that's where Australia <laughs> can go. Yeah, a completely different life, really, in those major cities. Yeah, was... I guess you never know what you're missing out on unless you're in it and grown up with it and surrounded by it all the time and when i'm we're not advocating changes in you need to do things but if things are definitely there uh free of charge or there uh and and people are doing them and people are liking it and and stuff it's been proven around the world that people enjoy this type of active lifestyle but it's not even it's it's kind of uh incidental like active lifestyle, people enjoy the activity, but they don't actually do it for exercise or they, they build buildings, social, social infrastructure. They socialize with other people and things, not because they feel like they have to, it's because they just run into people and they go, they, they suddenly go, oh, well, I have to talk to you now. And then they build a relationship about this person isn't actually that bad. Um, so an architect in, local architect in Melbourne, Jeremy, Jeremy McLeod, from uh, Breathe Architecture, he's 
made a, a different business model called Nightingale Housing, which is a, a social infrastructure or a social building uh, scheme proposal uh, firm where they've bought a few lots in Brunswick. And they're actually building medium high-rise buildings, affordable, carbon zero. The bills are super cheap and the apartments are super cheap. Uh, he's used this element of reduction in, the, in each apartment. So you don't get a laundry, but you get a laundry on the roof. So you get three or four metres back in your apartment for a larger living space. But then at the downside, you might have to hang your undies out with uh, your, your next door neighbour <laughs> once in a while. Have to get used to that. Yeah, exactly. And he says he don't, doesn't actually own a car because he's so close to the train stations and, and everywhere that he, he and his uh, residents within there, his friends, he calls them. Now, first of all, they were just strangers, but now he said before taking a lecture, he actually went over to one of their apartments and sat down with them and said, God, I'm really nervous about this. <laughs> Can you talk me through this? Um, so he's using those people that he thought he didn't know. Uh, strangers and now he's he's friends with them so I guess we're social after all aren't we they're very social that's what that's all about and did you want to talk at all about the hydrogen infrastructure yeah so I I guess um just on that level hydrogen infrastructure has been proven to be very efficient up to 90 percent in comparison to the gas appliances at the moment which means that there's less gas supplied to your house which means you lose you use less gas, which means you pay for less gas That's nice. um, and, and it's cheaper for everyone. So, I mean, despite the environmental uh, positives about uh, hydrogen infrastructure, the gas uh, network has room to be evolved and changed. And uh, this proposal will put some data in, in place. So perhaps we can transform and start to adapt our current gas network into, into that style. Um, because everyone wants cheaper bills. I know that winter at the moment is stinging everyone. <laughs> yeah, it'd be nice to have cheaper bills, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah. And I guess um, back to the woven city, the three lanes, uh, has actually proposed a, a Brooklyn Bridge uh, proposal where he thinks that the Brooklyn Bridge was always made for pedestrian access from Brooklyn to New York. But however, perhaps we can, through the uprising of the automobile, it now... Uh, it doesn't transport people, it transports cars to and fro and often uh, is involved with a lot of traffic jams and things. So he says, well, maybe we can bring the bridge back to its original heritage, transporting people rather than cars. So we put cars at the bottom uh, and then we put uh, bike lanes in the middle and then a nice park on the top representing the another successful uh, social infrastructure project in New York called the High Line. So the High Line is, is basically this decommissioned railway track in Manhattan that weaves around and they were actually going to demolish it. But one architect was like, whoa, 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 hang on. We could actually do something with this. Perhaps we create an elevated park, a walkway, a running track, a bicycle lane for the people of New York and give back to them. So that was the gift. And perhaps Brooklyn Bridge can be yet another gift. Very good idea. Utilising space, isn't it? That's what it's all about as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, mentioning the time-sensitive podcast was Bjark's response to criticism regarding his lack of aesthetic style, which you touched on earlier. Yeah, yeah. So he addresses this criticism by saying that I, he believes he doesn't have a... He agrees with them. I don't have an aesthetic style, but he says, having a style is almost the sum of all your inhibitions, a straitjacket that keeps you from who you were 
and inhabits you from who you could become. I would like you to be, I would like to be rigorous in the way I approach things, but I would like to be rigorous in the questions I ask as well. Then the answers I come up with are because they should always be informed by the questions. So they're always have some weight to them because if I ask questions and I answer them, well, at least I've done something. Perhaps. And I guess that goes back to the conclusion of my essay saying that the most important buildings are the buildings that ask questions. Well, what are those questions? And he's trying to come up with them, I guess. Right, okay. And to finish, we will talk about two of his projects, which Biak describes in his Columbia University lecture as non-buildings. What's non-buildings? Yeah, I I thought I'd chuck into uh, definitely a quote from him saying that these buildings are non-buildings. Uh, but also to try and debunk the main criticism that all these buildings are ugly, all these buildings are boxy, and he's become famous because he creates uh, buildings that basically anyone can design. And I'm saying that when you peel back the buildings, the boxy ones, they're they're more complex than, than you might have thought. And then I thought, well, we may as well put some buildings in that he has designed that don't look boxy um, to kind of further put that criticism to bed so to speak (laughs) (laughs) to a baseball stadium yeah yeah so exactly so um the Oakland A's uh, baseball team in Oakland uh ironically um he he targets he's like if I'm going to make a baseball stadium I can make the best looking baseball stadium ever with so many seats but then people need a place to park and also the baseball stadium like if we're spending this much money on infrastructure to build the building so much money for this structure that if you build a skyscraper, you can justify the massive bill at the end of it because people use it every day and it generates money all the time because there's there's multiple companies, even hundreds of companies, if you take the Rialto building in, in Melbourne, for instance. But a sporting complex is only used when the sport is being played and sometimes you have away games. The Oakland A's might not actually be playing in Oakland. So you have 20 weekends of the year and then only a half of them are actually being played. So you're only playing 10, 15 maybe games a year using that expensive building for that. So he says, well, maybe we can build a building, we can build a baseball building, but what's the change? Well, maybe uh, Oakland's struggling in tourism, maybe uh, the people need some more things, maybe there's other proposals that are on the line for the, the council in Oakland, or maybe we can roll all of them into one. Maybe there's a, a hospitality crisis so perhaps the building, as well, if, as well as just having fast food venues in the building that come in when the games are on, well, maybe we can have local businesses in there all the time that are always supported and supported more when the game is on. So he's made this traditional baseball park using the rim of the baseball stadium, the outside, as a kind of walkable roof park with like green trees and, and things like that. And as you walk up from the building, the, uh, it's like a, a donut shape. One of the donuts touches, one of the ends touches the ground. So you're able to seamlessly walk from the street onto the roof and then up and then back down again. So he says, often the furthest seats away from the action are always the lousiest, the, the most boring. But these are green bench seats surrounded by trees. The people that don't pay the most actually might have a better experience than the people that are in the, the front of the seats. Yeah, and they're not walking on the hallowed turf, are they, during non-season time? <laughs> no, no, we don't so... want them doing that. 
So the reason why he's, he's proposing that this building stays open as a public park, a free park, um, when the baseball isn't on, but the only part of the building that's shut down is the, is the pitch itself. So the groundskeeper, I guess, uh, he can stop having his conniption and <laughs> rest easy for a little bit. And, and create tourism too. People would like to go and see the stadium. Yeah, well. exactly. So addressing the, uh, the parking situation, he said that often these expensive buildings are coupled with an even larger footprint of parking next to it, which is also vacant. So you've got all this space, which is always vacant and just a lump of concrete all the time. So perhaps we can relocate the parking offsite so people walk and have this kind of grand gesture there. We can have a, a gondola system which goes from the parking lot, which brings people into the stadium via a lift or yeah, a, go- a traditional gondola system. And then we can have a, like kind of a, a clean area where we can pr- produce some residential buildings behind, um, also a, a capitalistic pr- approach, but possibly extending the urban fringe of Oakland um, and creating a more kind of like a sporting precinct, but also a hospitality precinct, a park precinct, um, and a public kind of social infrastructure precinct. Mm, the co- so, connectivity, isn't it? Yeah. It's, imagine if uh, Federation Square and the MCG were smashed into one with the botanical gardens. Um, that's kind of what we're thinking about. Yeah, that's 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 really forward thinking, isn't it? And and talking about thinking, the Blavan Bunker Museum. Wow! So they're talking about what architects love to say: it's a duality of building elements and spaces. Tell us a bit about this. <laughs> yeah. So um, because this is a, it's actually built a non-building, an invisible building in a nature reserve. So when you're an architect, you have to. Often the council regulations prohibit you from doing so many things um, and it can kind of, it can be a, a major constraint and stump you in, it, in your tracks or you can actually bring that on and, and produce something special. So this bunker was created by the Nazis in the Second World War and was actually used, uh, was going to be used as a kind of manning station with a turret. Uh, uh, I think it was September the 9th of 1945 and for good reasons that wasn't successful. Um, so it's kind of been built and sitting there without a purpose. So uh, giving the place purpose, giving the place history and teaching people. Um, he's created a museum under the bunker. So you have this kind of solid form and then you have this kind of weightlessness, a series of precise incisions into the earth where he's submerged. If we can't have a building there because it's a national park, well, perhaps we can have a building, a non-building, which is actually underground. And uh, if you Google the Bloodvard Bunker Museum by Big, you actually get to see that it doesn't look... It looks like uh, the bunker next to it is quite big and the building that he's made is quite small. But then when you see the interior photos, it kind of opens up and all of this light comes in and uh, you have this kind of relationship. So you have the duality in this is that there's a building on the top and there's a building underneath. There's a building that is old and a building that's new. You've got a bunker that's old and a new bunker, but they don't actually speak the same language. So you have a direct comparison all the time. And it's how you kind of nurture that. And it also heightens the, the senses of the people that are going there because they see the building as they rock up, they walk past it. They uh, emerged into this different building, this non-building. And then they traverse down into the depths of the, through the museum and then they are met, met immediately with this kind of context of the old versus the new where 
the kind of expedition reaches a point where the two worlds collide. So you have new tectonics and old tectonics working with each other and stuff, So which heightens, at the end of the day, it's, it's architectural kind of jargon, but it all makes the experience worthwhile and someone has to think of it. If you just put a building next to it, then I guess it'd be disobeying council regulations. But also, <laughs> it probably wouldn't have the same strength. It wouldn't be showing the respect of the, the bunker in the way that, that it needed. So I guess the change for this one was that, hey, let's build a building. Oh, we, don't, we can't build a building. Okay, well, next project. Well, maybe we address the change. Okay, well, what can we do? What can we get away with? Well, we'll, use, uh, we'll make a non-building, a building underground, but we'll also use similar materials found within the Bunker Museum to draw comparisons and to create a respect between the two buildings. And then the gift, I guess, is to be able to be connected with the old building uh, a gift is actually the museum itself um, and, and so on. I don't think he's ever explicitly told us what the gift is, but I guess we can make assumptions. Yeah, the gift, what well, I'm, I'm sort of thinking the gift is, <clears throat> it's an educational tool, isn't it, for the new generations coming through? Yeah, I guess um, the, the war is a distant, me- like, I think it's a distant page in a history book for us and it's a different, distant memory for a few people left um, which, which were there to experience it. So uh, I guess it's, it's important that we keep history um, being told and retold and being respected. Um, whether it may be capitalistic or not, I don't think that's relevant. And, and of course, these buildings we've been talking about, the Ark Ingalls, is, it all meets those core principles that we spoke about earlier as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, those three core principles just come into it. So we, we just touch upon them just before with the, with the change and what the, uh, what the gift was. And then the third one was the building needs to insert itself into six different dogmas, um, thinking, making, moving, sensing. So perhaps this could be thinking. I think there's some interactive exhi- uh, exhibitions in there, which is making, uh, you're moving through the different places, but I don't think it means moving in the, in the physical sense of moving. I think he might mean uh, kind of digital um, automotive moving, um, perhaps prosthetics and things like that. So, yeah, definitely a, a building for the future, and I, I guess it can be, it's, it's timeless. At, well, I, we can't make that assumption now, but it looks pretty futuristic. And did you want to talk about utopian realism again? Well, I know we touched on it earlier. Then. Yeah, I, I, yeah, so I've got an academic reference here um, which addresses utopian realism, which I guess is the style that Biark, uh, can his architectural style, but I guess architects, he doesn't want to be categorised as this. He wants to be utopian pragmatic instead of utopian realis- realism, but I guess utopian pragmatism is, hasn't been recognised or written about it at all. So utopian realism is what we have. So <laughs> utopia is a non-place. Um, this is also uh, written in Theorising a New Agenda for Architecture um, under the topic utopian realism. Uh, Utopian is a non-place because it is inaccessible. It is also everywhere. A ghost that infuses everyday reality with an otherworldly dream. The beauty of utopian realism is the open-ended reconsideration of powerful and efficacious position in the social-political realm. Due to the empowerment of professional practice, we must sort for more robust, more effective architecture. 
This is to accommodate for an extra level of academic theory. To say nothing of history, utopian realism is critical, it is real, it is enchantingly secular. It thinks differently, it is a style with no form, it moves sideways instead of up and down the family tree. It is utopian, not because the dream, it dreams impossible dreams, but because it recognises reality itself as precisely an all too real dream, enforcing, enforced by those who prefer to accept a deconstructive and oppressive status quo. So I guess that's a very mouth, like heavy mouthful of, of content there and very uh, academic talk. But I guess what it's saying is that perhaps for our buildings to matter these days in such a complex world where so many considerations are given to us every day, every, all time, I think uh, Australia is going to make more standards uh, addressing climate change in, in the built environment. I think a, a new Australian standard is on the horizon. So there's always new things that we need to consider. And I guess it says that because we need to consider so many things, perhaps our buildings can't hold on to the past. They can certainly be informed by it, but to be characteristic or use methods found from past examples would be neglecting the kind of approach, the kind of consideration that we need to take in order to make sure that these buildings appeal to the people that it's built for. So, yeah. Very, very well go. said. And, and I'll, we'll conclude here our podcast, Alex. So I'll say what, uh, in conclusion of everything that you've said today, but is there anything else you wanted to add before I, I do that? No, I think, um, I think we just have to answer those, those last questions just to finish off. For sure. Okay. Well, let's uh, have a look at this. Architects should be the facilitators of change, constantly adjusting, adding, reimagining the urban fabric to address new social, environmental and political challenges. And they have dreams about making the world a better place, a world that is not tied to any allegiances or sways to the right or left wing. To do so would create bias and jeopardise the proposal. They dream of a place for the people for all people, regardless of race, ethnicity, I'll get that out, Alex, <laughs> sexuality, gender. Architects believe that a good building or space can psychologically transform the general public's perception on reality, maintaining a societal open-mindedness that accepts change. When architecture does not address these challenges, it may neglect change which results in a building which is fundamentally disconnected to place and culture. As a result, we may lose the meaning of fundamental social constructs mentioned above and creating a monoculture, disconnecting society from their heritage, which we don't want to do, do we, Alex? No, I think, um, yeah, it just goes it goes back to we, we don't want our architect to neglect the, the human subject at all. We want it to empower everyone. We want it to facilitate any activity that people want to do and that should do. And uh, we need to make sure that these buildings don't confine ourselves to the past but they also don't ignore it so uh we've got a work cut out for us but i i think we're well equipped to be able to do so in an ethical manner hopefully <laughs> very much so so and so if that is the basis of what an ethical architect should aim towards when designing a building using biark and his firm big do we think he is an example of what a modern day ethical architect and firm looks like and does he exploit capitalism is this a bad thing and can buildings which exploit capitalism achieve good design biark thinks so yeah i i guess um i think the greatest 
comparison between Biak and what he does is that it's very capitalistic. I guess he's reached a point where his word, his designs mean a little bit, carry a little bit more weight than your average architect. Um, and therefore, people might think that he would be able to get away with things uh, by by just creating buildings for the developer to get more money for himself, more money for other people, and and kind of exploit a kind of big firm capitalism where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. However, I guess hopefully we've given some respect to his ideas. Um, hopefully, I haven't been too biased in in saying that I enjoy some of his thoughts um, and the way he's approached certain ideas. And perhaps that with our definition of being ethical, I don't think that there's any correlation between being ethical and having money and then also creating a good building with good design. And I guess good design is determined by how good and how responsive it is to the human subject, past, present and future. Alex Cherry, Master's student at Deakin University, thank you very much for your time on The Shape of You today. It's been a big discussion, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been a bit of a mouthful. I hope it's uh, not too confusing or anything. I think, uh, yeah, hopefully it's been good. Thank you. And I'll leave you to answer this question yourself. Can a building shape the future, an architectural perspective? Can a building shape your future? Look forward to chatting to you next time. Thank you, Tony. Thank you.